Hello, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Um, so we started off uh, with um, a big week for Oxfam. This is Davos week and for the last five or six years we've been uh, trolling Davos rather successfully with a series of reports and killer facts on inequality. Um, we'd started back in 2014 by pointing out that the 85 richest people in the, on the planet had the same wealth as half the world, which had an amazing media hit in Davos that year. We've been going back each year, pushing this whole message about inequality and the extremes it's got to. And I think we've had real impact in terms of agendas, discourses, things that are hard to measure, but I think are very important in terms of making inequality a thing in those rarefied sort of leadership circles. This year, we actually um, focused on feminist economics. We, our report, Time to Care, was upfront feminist, no messing about. It had some great um, uh, killer facts. You know, it calculated that women and girls do 125, sorry, 12.5 billion hours a day of unpaid care, and many more hours than that for poverty wages in various very low-paid jobs. The total value of unpaid care is $10.8 trillion a year, three times the total tech industry. Um, so the report did not advocate wages for housework. We didn't go there, but we talked about the four R's. You need to recognise the unpaid care economy. You need to reduce the, 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 the burden on women. You need to redistribute between men and women. And you need to represent people in this part of the economy in decision-making. Um, and I think, let me just uh, bring up a quote I dug out, which I think would be useful. Hold on a second. Here we go. Um, my favourite non-care economy killer fact from the report. This was we also did um, uh, some numbers on just extreme inequality of wealth. If everyone were to sit on their wealth piled up in $100 bills, most of humanity would be sitting on the floor and a middle-class person in a rich country would be sitting at the height of a chair. The world's two richest men would be sitting in outer space. To which the obvious question is, well, is that the best place for them? And I couldn't possibly comment. So I, I liked the combination of the sort of wealth killer facts and the wealth discourse with the, with the feminist discourse. And although Davos has been dominated by climate change, and quite right too, um, I think we got really good impact with this work on the care economy. And it's a long-term commitment of Oxfam's to raise these issues. And I think the team did a really good job there. Second up was, what do we know about developmental leadership? So, you know, we talk a lot about structures, politics, power. Um, if you're a Marxist, you talk about classes and class struggle. But do we, what do we know about the leaders, which anybody working in social change, political change, development, knows that the success of a particular effort often comes down to brilliant, inspiring leadership, of which we see huge amounts. Um, and so this time, for this blog, I read um, four foundation papers from the Developmental Leadership Programme, which is an Australian-funded exercise that's been going since 2006 and has been digging away at this question of where do leaders come from, what are they, what's special about them, and how can they be supported. Um, these foundation papers kind of took stock of what have been done so far and were trying to come up with the questions for the next phase of research in the programme. And I noticed some recurring themes. One is structure versus agency. So, you know, classic distinction. Is it, 
our political decisions decided by the structures that dominate our lives, the, you know, who holds power, the institutions, the organisations, or is it about agency? Is it about individuals able to make things, change things, make things happen? Um, and what is the balance between structure and agency? Uh, I think there's a fantastic quote from Karl Marx on this, which I don't think has been bettered, about the relationship between the structural foundations of change and the ability of individuals to make change happen. Men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. How good is that? What a writer. Um, so that question is, 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 is recurring in this question of developmental leadership, structure versus agency. Another classic is nature versus nurture. Are leaders born or are they made? If they're born, then you should be you know, about trying to spot them, identify them, support them. If they're made, then you could be supporting training, capacity, you know, uh, trying to create new generations of leaders, especially amongst those who are underrepresented in current leadership. So big, big important questions about the nature versus nurture. There's um, leaders versus followers. So a focus just on leaders can easily degenerate into a big man history, a uh, big man sort of theory of history, where if you just understand all the Churchills and Stalins, you can understand history. But actually, uh, in many ways, what's important is who do followers pick? And there's a lovely proverb from Malawi, a leader without followers is just someone taking a walk. So what is the interaction between leaders and followers? How do followers shape leaders? How do leaders shape followers? So trying to understand that dynamic is really important. And then finally, leadership is not a kind of, it's not separate from context. Leadership is intimately dependent on the, the moment. And no better example than Churchill, who was kind of revered as a war leader. And then as soon as the Second World War was over, he was dumped at the election because he was not seen as a peacetime leader. So what, is, what constitutes leadership depends on the moment. Uh, and so I thought really interesting stuff coming out of the developmental leadership programme. Next up was um, uh, a book I read on what, what are called pockets of effectiveness. And this is the, the fact that um, even in really messed up places, fragile, conflict-affected states, you will find often little bits of the state which are actually doing okay. You know, they might be a particular ministry or a particular municipality or region. Different bits actually get on and, and do reasonably well. And the book, which is called The Politics of Public Sector Performance, edited by Michael Roll, has done a classic academic exercise, which is you, you kind of identify a bunch of these pockets of effectiveness. Essentially, it's like institutional positive deviance. You're trying to look at the the positive outliers on a, a range of sort of capacity and skills within different bits of, of, of state institutions. And they, they found examples in China, Brazil, Nigeria, Suriname and elsewhere. And then you do case studies and then you try and identify some common features. And the common features they found were that a lot of this is down to powerful heads of state in failing patronage-based systems. And those heads of state think, right, we need to fix this. We need to fix tax income. We need to fix revenue from oil and gas. We need to fix education because it's bringing shame on our country, whatever it is. And in order to do that, they appoint technocrats to try and bypass politics and the sort of horse trading. They appoint technocrats, they back them to run a separate 
institution. They pay them better than average and they give them some kind of legal autonomy so they're not dependent on other bits of institution of the state which can drag them down. And they do this quickly within the first two years of get, coming to power. And the, it's really important that these pockets of effectiveness deliver quick results so that, the, so that they can sort of strengthen the case for them to remain protected and funded. All very interesting. Does it have any impact uh, or relevance to outsiders looking in at these pockets of effectiveness? And I think the overriding sense I got from the book was that this is a case for humility on the point of outsiders and on at least two uh, on at least two, for at least two reasons. One is outsiders just do not seem to be decisive in, whether, in terms of whether these pockets of effectiveness arise and whether they uh, endure and, and get results. So, you know, this is not aid-driven, this is domestic politics-driven. But the second one is that, you know, <clears throat> it may well be the case that it's better to look for these pockets of effectiveness, look, look harder at what is there, and put to one side all our received ideas about what works, best practice, blueprints, toolkits, all that stuff. So, you know, let's get better at looking at what's there and then maybe supporting those second or third best solutions is, is a better option than coming in with our, hey, let's all be like Denmark, which is kind of a shorthand version for what some people do when they're talking about institutional reform. Next up, Kevin Watkins, who's head of Save the Children, also has time for some reason, somehow, I don't know how, to tweet. And he tweeted uh, what he said was his favourite, yeah, one of his favourite all-time pieces of uh, writing by Martin Luther King. Uh, he, King wrote this very long 7,000-word letter from Birmingham City Jail in 1963 when he was in prison. Um, and he was goaded to it by a letter in the papers from some white, moderate clerics uh, clergyman saying um, that they disagreed with his tactics, it was too violent, and that you know, they, were, they, were, they, they, they didn't agree with what King had been doing. And King, obviously really annoyed King, and he really uh, took flight in this letter, which is, was smuggled out uh, and then transcribed and published in all sorts of places in the States. I mean, the, the writing is phenomenal, you know, just incredibly lyrical wonderful flights of rhetoric but actually what attracted me was the analysis he's got some lovely sort of tips for for activists in there as well one is his recipe for non-violent direct action you know the, the, the thing he was in, uh, developing and leading and inspiring he said there are four stages collect the facts understand the injustice collect the facts that underlie the problem negotiate with power holders if those negotiations fail as they usually will you self-purify. This was the bit that really struck me. You, you have to go through a period of preparing for what is to come. And that means in their case, in the case of the civil rights activists in the, in the, in the south of the US, getting ready to be beaten up, getting ready to be treated like dirt, being sure that you could do that without tipping over into violence and ruining the whole moment. And only then do you take action. I thought that was great. He also talked brilliantly about the importance of creating tension. It's a big part of of activism is you create tension in the minds of power holders. Um, you've got to make them sort of be anxious and uncertain in order for them to take action. So the kind of what kind of tension is constructive and what kinds is actually destructive. He had a lovely little aside on just versus unjust laws, partly looking at the theology, but partly also asking, saying, yeah, the difference is that just laws bind the powerful as well as the powerless. Unjust laws are only applied to the powerless, which I thought was a very nice rule of thumb. And then a really long rant about 
how disappointed he was with was with the white moderates, especially the people who had written the letter he was reacting to. Um, and he talked about them being a greater stumbling block in many ways than the Ku Klux Klan, which is pretty harsh words. And I'll just read a little quote here from him and just get it up on the computer. <coughs> Sorry, uh, the computer's very slow. A shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. What a, what a writer. Fantastic. Okay, then the final piece of the week was from one of my former students. So this week we started this year's uh, course on uh, the LSE for master's students on campaigns, advocacy and grassroots activism, which is the highlight of my year. You get, I've got sort of 50 fantastic students from all over the world. Many of them have already done years in different bits of social movements and NGOs and aid agencies, and they're coming together and we're going to systematise thinking and probe the issues around advocacy. Uh, Inis Isimbi, back in uh, the first year I did this, two years ago, her personal project, each of the students has to have a personal project around a change they would like to bring about in their country. Her personal product, uh, project was about removing the tampon tax in Rwanda. And she put out a really nice you know, project proposal for how to do it. And she got in touch last week to say, oh, we've done it. You know, it's not down to her, it's down to a bunch of players. But uh, Rwanda has just removed VAT on sanitary products. And so she's written up a really nice blog post on it for the LSE, for the International Development Blog, but also for From Poverty to Power, and I put it up, uh, put it up uh, on Friday. Um, she covers the evidence. You know, In 2017, 18% of girls and women were not able to attend school or work due to having their periods and, and not being able to afford sanitary products. Um, she showed how the government took some sort of halfway steps. They set up things called the girls' room in schools where uh, girls could get uh, free um, sanitary products and so on, um, which started to get momentum, but it was only a partial success. It didn't deal with girls and women who were out of school. And then she interviewed Diane Gashumba, the uh, Minister of Health, who happens, I know this, happens to be Anise's auntie, which is probably why she managed to interview her at such short notice. And she did a really interesting case study on how change happens from the inside of the Rwandan government. And the minister said that the, yeah, there were two interlocking factors, or well, at least two. One is Rwandan youth. There was a big free the period campaign run by civil society in, in Rwanda, but also an unexpected champion. So the minister of justice who's the father of daughters, got behind this and started saying, you know, why are we doing this? And then in Rwanda, evidence counts. So the fact that the evidence was so strong on the impact of this and how much it was damaging the economy and keeping kids out of school was very persuasive. So very nice to be able to see how change happens from the inside of a government. Um, thanks, Anise, for that. And with that, I shall end this week's roundup and have a good weekend.